Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. Today's interview, we have Dr. Georgia Purdom from Answers in Genesis. Now, this is an interview that, uh, if you're familiar with the Dr. Jason Lau interview, it's going to be probably a little bit scientific, but hopefully we're going to be answering a lot of questions that you may have and questions that you've never really had a good, clear answer to from a creationist perspective. A little bit about Dr. Purdom is the fact that she has a PhD in molecular genetics from Ohio State University. She's currently the director of educational content and actively writes and speaks for Answers in Genesis. She's written numerous books and countless scholarly articles, which many are actually published in scientific journals. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Purdom, but your scientific research focuses really on the rules of natural selection and mutation in microbial populations. Uh, could you explain really quick a little bit, what is that? What does that mean? What's that focus of yours? Sure. Um, so one of the things that's really fascinating to me is obviously when God created, originally created um, bacteria, which is especially what I focus on, uh, they were all very good. Um, but we know that in today's world, some of them do cause disease. So my interest is um, what has caused that? Like how have they changed? and or adapted to um, now cause disease um, in some situations. And so that's why I kind of look at things like natural selection and mutation to sort of figure out how that's happened. Okay, now it's not very uh, normal for me to just jump into a question like that, but again, going over your bio, it's like, what is that? But <laughs> so again, I do wanna thank you for spending time today. I know you're a very busy lady and everything. Uh, before we jump into the real questions, could you give a little bit about yourself, your ministry, how you were led to go, whether with Answers in Genesis or Molecular Genetics? Sure. So I've always been interested in science. Um, that was something from when I was very young that I knew I wanted to be a part of. And as I grew older and went to college and everything, I realized that I really wanted to get involved in uh, research and then eventually into teaching. And so that's kind of um, where my uh, education sort of led me. Uh, and I got my um, PhD from Ohio State. And then right after I did that, I actually went into teaching. So I taught at a Christian college for six years and really enjoyed my time there, really enjoyed teaching, but just really feeling God's call to do more in the area of creation apologetics. Mm -hmm. And just because I had a real heart to see people, um, you know, I think it's possible for many people to grow up in the church and be in Christian families and all that, but not really know how to defend their faith and defend it well. And so that became a passion of mine was I want other people to know this. I want to teach other people how to do this and why it's so important because um, it became so important to me. And uh, so that God really laid that on my heart. And so while I was teaching college, I was also doing a lot of, um, you know, just research and understanding in the area of apologetics and getting myself sort of up to speed on that. And then the Lord just opened the door for me to come to Answers in Genesis. And so I've been there a little over 14 years now. Um, and I always say, I still, I'm still teaching. I just don't have to grade any homework, um, and do that kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> I get to do the fun part. Um, and so I just enjoy being able to, um, teach and now direct a lot of our educational programming that we have at the museum and at the art. And correct me if I'm wrong. You do a lot of peer reviewing, right? I do do some peer review. Yes. Could you explain a little bit what, what is peer reviewing and what is your role in that? Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's several different levels of peer review that I do. So I'm actually the chair of the editorial review board at Answers in Genesis. And that review board consists of myself and several other people. 
and we review all content that Answers in Genesis produces and or sells. Um, and so uh, that's a lot. <laughs> um, so whether it's a DVD or the magazine or whatever it may be. So we're involved in a lot of review there. Um, now peer review, um, normally when people are thinking about that, they're thinking about technical journals, like scientific journals, theological journals, whatever, you know, whatever field, it, academic field it might be in. And so Answers in Genesis also produces um, Answers Research Journal, which is our technical peer reviewed journal. That's kind of the, the name, it, it, you know, that we would talk about or how we would talk about it. And so, um, and there's several other creation journals as well, like the Creation Research Science Quarterly, um, I've reviewed for there as well. And so just like any other academic journal, um, all of the articles that go into these um, journals are reviewed by people that are experts in the field. So if there's um, a genetics article, um, it would, might be sent to me and I would review it. We also have another geneticist, so I'm not the only one, um, but I would review it and then give my recommendation or that it should be rejected, approved, revised, you know, what? So that, that's true for, um, just like it's true in the secular academic field, it's true in the creation or Christian academic field as well. At least it should be. Um, and with the ones that I'm connected with. No, more like a checks and balances type thing. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've got to do that. You know, you don't want people to become an island to themselves. And there's always um, wisdom in the council of many. So uh, we, that's, that's just the norm. That's what we want. We want to have... <laughs> We should be having as Christians even a higher level of um, uh, quality, so to speak, when we publish things. Right. And in one of my other videos, I have a, I have a video out there called Dear Atheists, 10 Things You Should Stop Saying About Christians. <laughs> and uh, it, it's amazing how much negative feedback I got on that. But mm -hmm. one of those is the fact of please stop saying that Christians are dumb and they have a low IQ score because there are a fascinating amount of Christians that have excellent IQ scores. They are very academically minded. And so to be able to get people like you, Dr. Lyle, some of the other folks onto the channel, it just helps mm -hmm. bring that point home. And so uh, again, so one thing you had mentioned as far as being a, the desire for Christian apologetics, and it's sort of how I got involved in this back in 2014 as well, is the fact that a lot of people, they know what they believe, but they really don't know why they yeah. believe it. And so would you say that your ministry is more focused on reaching the Christians to solidify their faith as opposed to answering the skeptics? Would, would that be? Well, I really think it's both. Um, I don't really think it's one or the other. Um, I would say we definitely spend a lot of time, obviously, um, helping to equip the church and equip Christians with the answers to um, what skeptics and what people are, um, are bringing to them. But I think also, you know, one of the things that's very interesting about the museum and the ark is we will have people come in there who would never, never enter a church, but they will come there. Um, they will come to the museum and the ark. And I think that's really fascinating that we kind of have this outreach to many non-Christian um, mm -hmm. that are coming in. And especially since we opened the ARC, I think we've seen an increasing amount of people that are not necessarily Christian um, come. And, and, what a, and what an amazing um, thing that is to be able to mm -hmm. share the gospel with them because that's clearly presented in both of our themed attractions. And um, we had a lady the other day, someone told me um, that had a t-shirt on that said, my body, my choice. And um, so I don't, you know, she probably, I don't know, you know, what her background is or anything right. like that. But we just opened our new Fearfully and Wonderfully Made exhibit at the Creation Museum. And I'm thinking, 
wow, we have an opportunity to impact her, mm-hmm. you know, with the truth um, that it's not my body, my choice. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think, I think it's both. I think we, we had a conference, uh, I don't remember, I think it was just last year. Yeah. On answering atheists, you know, so mm-hmm. we want to, we were hoping that a lot of atheists, because there was an atheist conference in town at the time. Okay. And so we want the atheists to listen to what we have to say, as well as the Christian, because we want them to be equipped too. Right. Well, wonderful. See, we already started and didn't even know that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to jump right into these questions. Uh, okay. Got about 13 of them, because 13 is a lucky number, right? Triscodecophobia. Right. <laughs> so first question, I like always to get a softball just to get things rolling. Uh, could you explain what is a molecular geneticist? And I think you've already answered why you got into it, but if not, could you elaborate on that as well? Yeah, so a molecular geneticist is somebody who studies really um, DNA and um, everything that sort of impacts and interacts with DNA. So mm-hmm. um, at the not just at the cellular level, but even at the more the nuclear level and understanding what all is going on there. So my interest in um, studying that was that because that's the that's the very base level that you get to when it comes to living things, right? It's the mm-hmm. DNA because that gives the instructions for how to make the proteins and everything that makes up an organism. So to me, I wanted to study that, you know, I want to study where it starts basically and um, how it can be impacted and affected. So that was, that was why I became interested in it. That's fascinating. I'm going to ask you a question later on and everything, but it's just fascinating. Like when you look at the seeds, no matter how small of a seed, the information that's coded in it, that mm-hmm. tells the seed not only what to be, but that the roots go down and it sprouts upward and it reaches the sunlight and everything. It's just fascinating, this information that's built in at yeah. such a small level, which is contrary mm-hmm. to what uh, the evolutionists used to posit and everything. But right. I know there's a lot of artic- argument about this, and I think when Ken Ham had his debate with Bill Nye, this came up as well. Could you explain the difference and what is meant by historical and observational science, and could you give examples so we can know the difference? Sure. So that's a, that's a great question and something that I think Christians really need to understand, um, because uh, we always want to define our terms very carefully, uh, especially when we're talking with people and potentially, you know, arguing or debating with people. You're spoken like a Christian apologist there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so historical science, well, let me, let me start with observational science. So observational science is what people usually think of when they use the word science. So it's the science, I always call it here and now science. It's what we do, we go into the lab and do, you know, we use the scientific method. We formulate a hypothesis, we do experiments. Do they support or not support the original hypothesis? So that's kind of what we're doing. It's repeatable, it's testable, and it's observable. Um, That's very, and so examples of that would be airplanes or our modern technology. The fact that we can do this meeting virtually, right? That is all observation, due to observational science. But um, historical science deals with, and, and I should say too, for observational science, your worldview doesn't have a huge impact on what you're doing. I I mean, because I worked alongside evolutionists in the lab just fine when I was in graduate school, because I always tell people, it's not like we consulted Darwin's Origin of Species every day before we started work, you know? It it was irrelevant, right? I mean, we just wanted to know, does this impact this or interact with this? And if so, how? And what does that lead to, you know? And so those were the types of scientific questions that we were asking, not how did it get here in the first place, right? That's not what we were addressing. So historical science um, is dealing with events that have happened in the past, right? Not in the present. So we can't observe it, we can't test it, and we can't repeat it. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about um, creation or evolution, right? Those are one-time events that have happened in the past. 
And so there, our worldview does play a huge role in how we view that, because do we believe that God has told us the truth in his word, the infallible God telling us the truth in his infallible word, or do we believe man's ideas about the past, fallible man, who wasn't there, right? I mean, those are really the two choices that we have. And uh, I mean, God, you know, we talk sometimes about having an eyewitness account. Well, we do have an eyewitness account, right? That's the best thing. We have the eyewitness account of God, who's the perfect eyewitness, um, and has given us that information in his perfect word. And so you can't get any better than that, right? From knowing about the past. And so how we look at the past, though, does affect how we interpret things in the present, right? And how we look at things like the fossil record or the rock layers or DNA or any of those things, how they came to be, right? How, how you know, what happened in the past to form this, so to speak? That's a very different question than what we deal with, you know, than developing technology or so to, so to speak. So that's kind of how they, um, those two things are, are so different. Um, you know, an example for historical science, like I just said, you know, it depends on, you could look at the fossil record, you could think of forensic science as a type of historical science, even though it also involves observational science, but you're postulating about what happened in the past. You don't know that that's what happened. And so you're trying to figure that out. Um, so those are types of historical science. And correct me if I'm wrong, that two big terms that are really used in matters of historical science and trying to have the worldview and what you hold now as far as interpreting then is uni uniformitarianism and catastrophism. Right, right. Uniformitarianism, so, small gradual processes through a long mm -hmm. period of time, they stay the same. What happens now happened then type deal. Right. right. Yeah, they'll say that the, the, the present is the key to the past. So yeah. they'll say that just because... Like now we see, you know, tectonic plates moving very slowly. So they've always moved that slowly. Um, so they're not going to take into account catastrophes that may have drastically changed how fast something happened. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's definitely one of the big differences. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there's a great illustration about somebody, you could say somebody, uh, you saw them running around the track and they're really slow running at the track. You're like, wow, this guy's running so slow. You know, he must have been running at this rate X amount of time. But what you don't realize is maybe that individual ran and he sprinted for like the first 20 right. minutes. And mm -hmm. now his energy is depleted. So he's running slower. So just right. because he's slow now doesn't mean he was slow then. Right. And so uh, I love it. Uh, defining your terms. That's one of the things I talk about a lot. Define the terms mm -hmm. and regurgitation. I'm people regurgitate a lot without looking into things. So you brought up a hypothesis. So this is a question I have for you. And I'm just going to read the question verbatim so that everybody there knows exactly what's being asked. But if a theory is a hypothesis that has been tested and seen to be true, how do you believe that evolution is able to be taught as a theory when it fails to meet scientific method criteria of being falsifiable based upon being historical science? Well, that's because people, evolutionists don't treat it as a theory. They treat it as a fact. <laughs> um, I would say it goes to that next level. Um, hmm. most, most evolutionists would say that it's not a theory. It's, it's, it fa it's a fact. It actually happened. Now, how it happened, they might say, you know, those are models and theories that we have to develop. But it is a fact that it happened. Um, I never call evolution a theory um, because I don't believe it meets the criteria for a theory. Um, not from a scientific perspective. Right. It is an idea. Mm -hmm. um it is a story <laughs> um but it's definitely not a theory um because and i think theory it's probably better to um you know you have to be able to apply the scientific method and you cannot do that with historical science right. so it's better to apply it to 
like I say, observational science and things that we deal with in the here and now, it's much better to apply it to that realm um, because you can test, you can observe it, you can falsify it. Um, if you're talking about creation or evolution or those types of things, those are really ideas about the past and um, those are based on worldviews, right? And starting points and assumptions. They're not based on uh, science, you know, the way we think and do science today in the here and now. And it's my understanding too, like even with evolutionary theory and everything else, and again, I don't like calling it a theory because calling it a theory in the scientific model makes it seem to be a lot more valid and yes. stronger than mm -hmm. really it's just a hypothesis. It's just a view, like you said, but right. uh, if I'm not mistaken, and we don't have to talk about this, but the Cambrian explosion seems to be a, a big knock against the uniformitarianism aspect of evolution as well. But, uh, Regarding origins of human life, what are the most common naturalistic theories of how life began on Earth, whether it's the primordial soup or alien uh, planning, whatever the case is? What are the most common you've heard of from the naturalistic perspective? And is there any sense of validity to any of them? Why or why not? Um, oh, well, there's a lot of those. Um, uh, one of them, one of the ones that's really popular, at least um, in my area, would be the RNA world. You know, that the okay. world, the, the first living thing started out um, with RNA, so to speak, you know, because RNA is sort of the intermediate between DNA and a protein. And mm -hmm. so um, if things started out originally with the genetic material, so to speak, being RNA, then it can sort of go either way. You know, you could, you could, um, transcribe it back in DNA, you could translate it into protein. Hmm. Um, but it becomes like a chicken and egg issue, you know, which came first, because in order to get RNA, in order to transcribe it or translate it, you have to have proteins. <laughs> so hmm. how do you get the proteins um, without, you know, the RNA? And how do you get the RNA without the proteins? Because it takes proteins to build RNA. Uh, so it's, it's really um, problematic. And, and one of the things that's really interesting to me, one time I was at a this has been a long time ago, but um, I was in a, a circle where they were talking about evolution and everything. And this one guy, um, so somebody had brought up the idea of the origin of life. Like, when did life begin? And he goes, oh, no, I'm not going to deal with that. He goes, no, we're just going to talk about evolution. And, and that's what I see happen a lot. They want to skip over the origin of life because they don't have a good explanation right. for it. They have no idea how all this amazing complexity could come about by random chance, right? And, and two, the more that we study um, microbes and things like that, and you see how complex they are, how does that happen? I mean, really, you only have about a billion years. So if the Earth is four and a half billion years old, and the first microbe recorded in the fossil record supposedly is at three and a half billion years, mm -hmm. then you have a billion years. And, and now that might sound like a lot, but it's not in evolutionary terms. And if you're starting out from scratch, right, from yeah. nothing, how do you get even the simplest microbe doing the simplest things? You don't. And so that's why even nowadays you talk about original life series, they push it into outer space, right? Yeah. So now it's panspermia or even directed panspermia where aliens sent life to earth, you know, and it seeded life on earth because, because the universe is supposedly 15 billion years old. So now you've got more time for these complex things to happen. So that's why I think that that's, that's what they'll do now. Um, even Dawkins, you know, will, will support directed panspermia to some degree because they, they just don't have good explanations um, because it's just such a short period of time for it to have evolved on Earth. And it's somewhat amazing how uh, 
the skeptic would like to charge the Christian as using a God of the gaps argument, whereas they just always inhibit time as the magic equation or the magic formula. And it really just speaks true, and I hate to say it, but you know, it really speaks true to Romans chapter one, where they're professing themselves mm -hmm. wise, they become fools. Rather yeah. than looking at the creator that created us, they want to look and whether they want to talk about the RNA and the chicken and the egg illustration, whether they want to talk about Pam Spermier, even the different theories, whether it's the white hole universe, the big bang, big crunch, oscillating universe, anything to take away from God and God's creation. And so it's quite sad, but it's kind of comical how, like I said, they'll charge the Christian apologist with a God of the gaps argument, whereas they're going to posit the same exact thing, even though we as a Christian apologist have a lot more to go off of. And it's not really a God of the gaps argument. It's the fact that we're a supernaturalist as opposed to a straight naturalist. Right. So, so you touched on a little bit already about irreducible complexity, specified complexity. Uh, I've heard both sides from the naturalists and the creationists as far as how these point to God and just the evolutionary issues and discussions. Could you explain the difference between irreducible complexity, specified complexity, and what does it mean for the creationists? Well, I would, I'd kind of lump those two together. I mean, in my sure. opinion, like I wouldn't separate them um, because they're really saying that these, um, you know, you usually um, hear it with intelligent design types of arguments because, and especially in the molecular genetics world or, or cellular world, you know, you hear these arguments a lot because the um, molecular processes are very complex. I mean, when you're talking about creating DNA, reading DNA, all of that, I mean, there's a huge high level of complexity and things have to happen in certain orders and everything has to be there. And so with um, irreducible complexity or specified, you can't take a piece of it away um, and have it work, right? So how could it evolve in a stepwise manner over eons of time if everything needs to be there for it to work appropriately, right? Um, just like a lot of times, like one of Behe, Michael Behe's argument is the blood clotting cascade, you know, because there's all these proteins that have to work in a particular order in order for you to be able to clot blood. Well, mm. what did you do before <laughs> um, all of those evolved? Because there's no, there's no way that all of them by chance would have evolved at the same time. It would have been stepwise fashion and evolution to use it or lose it mentality. So if it doesn't have a function, why would it keep it for another million years until the next one came along? I like know? that statement. The use it or lose it mentality, because that's really what it is with their push on vestigial right. organs and everything. Yeah, the way they get around that is they will say, well, it used it for one thing. And then once this other thing came along, it co-opted it and it used it then for that. But again, that's kind of a got it again. That's sort of a... <laughs> Uh, that type of argument's hand waving, you know, because it's just trying to explain it, even though it doesn't, even though you really can't, you don't really have a valid explanation for it. Right. So, um, so yeah, so that's the thing. And, and, uh, and that's one of the things that first, I think one of the things that really speaks to the existence of God to me is because you, you have to know this comes from a mind, right? I mean, you're not going to take, like, if you took all the components of your smartphone, put them in a paper bag, like all of them are separate, shook it up. Right. and said, you're never going to expect to have a smartphone come out of that ever, right? right? It's never going to happen because there's no, there's not, there's not enough time for that to happen. And there, and there's no way for that to happen. That's what I always say too, kind of going off here a little bit, but is that there's no, I mean, people always say, evolutionists will say time is the key. And I will say time is not the key. You can have all the time you want. You do not have a mechanism. And if you do not have a mechanism, you cannot go from point A point B. It doesn't matter how, um, how much time you give it. I always say you can have trillions of years, right? I'll give you all the time you want. 
But if you don't have a way, you don't have a mechanism to change one kind of organism into a different kind of organism, you'll never get there. Yep. So it, it's useless. So they don't have a mechanism. That's really, that's really the problem. Yeah. And forgive me, but you made me think of something. I think it's going to be a wonderful object illustration. I'm going to have to get up here for my desk and everything. But right now I just have this, I have this empty Yeti coffee mug, right? And uh -huh. I replaced it with this bigger one. I just retired from the military. And so my folks ended up getting me that from the military, but, uh, it, it, the law of abiogenesis, you know, in how people say that life originally arose from non-life. Right. And so how can something transform and create life mm -hmm. a, or spontaneous generation? And so just having an empty jar, a glass jar on the desk is a clear re revelation that this will never turn into anything or nothing will spontaneously start right. here because, again, it's not observational science. It's a type of hand waving, like you said. It's just an argument that they just kick the can down the road and posit time, whatever the case is, random chance, things like yeah. that. So, and yeah, like irreducible complexity, specified complexity. I personally liken it to a car. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily need everything in the car. You don't need a door handle for the car to work, but you need a transmission. You need yeah. an engine. You need all these other pieces that without one of those, it's not going to function. And unless they're all together at the same time, which a creationist would posit, it's not going to work. And right. so it just, well, we're starting to get into some more technical things. There's going to be a cultural question I'm going to ask you. I'm looking forward to your answer on that one. But uh, first, we're talking about really your wheelhouse in uh, DNA. Okay. I thought I remembered what it stood for off the top of my head, but some nucleic acid. Deoxyribonucleic acid. There you go. But DNA, can you explain what is DNA? This is multi-question, so if you want me to repeat them, let me know. Okay. What are the naturalistic arguments as to where the information within the DNA comes from? How does the naturalist articulate that? And how do you believe DNA reveals the necessity of a creator? Okay, so DNA um, is basically the code of life. So it is the instructions for how to make um, living things. All living things have DNA. There are no exceptions to that. Um, and so um, it consists of four bases, um, a, abbreviated A, C, T, and G. And those four bases arranged in different orders and different organisms give you different things. Mm -hmm. um, it's extremely complex. It has a three-dimensional structure of a double helix, like a twisted double helix. Uh, there's about six feet of it in every nucleus in your body of every cell. Um, so there's a lot of it. There's three, about three billion base pairs in human beings, and it has a range depending on the living thing um, that you're talking about. And so it just gives that information. And so um, your question is, how how would how would naturalists explain where that came from? Right. Well, they would just say by random chance. I mean, that's all they have because they don't have a designer. They're, sometimes they talk about evolution as if, it's a, if it has a mind, you know, and if it's forward thinking and it has a conscious, it can do these things, but it isn't. It doesn't. Right. Um, it, it's completely, that, that is a wrong way to talk about it. It would have to come about by random chance, um, these nucleotides coming together in a way that, that formulated a message and um, to how to encode a particular protein or whatever it may be. Uh, and, and so I don't think they don't have, I mean, other than that, they don't have, there are no other explanations because again, there's no designer. So it just had to come about 
randomly. Um, and they would say, well, you know, once something was um, positive and good, it kept that. Well, sure. I'm not, our, I, sure. You can say that. That still doesn't explain where it came from in the first place though. Again, that's sort of an after, after it came about. Um, they're not explaining the origin of, um, right. They just want to talk about what happens after how right. it could be kept or, or discard it. Um, and I think it really does point to the necessity of a creator because you have to have a mind, right? You have to have a mind that can um, create this. And when you look at the sheer complexity of DNA and all living things, there's no way anyone but God could have done this. Um, th there just isn't. I mean, we is you know we've sequenced the human genome and we think we're all great because we did that <laughs> but all it is i mean and we are starting to decode it so to speak and understand it but we will never ever be able to understand the all the levels of complexity that are there i mean i always tell people it's like layer upon layer upon layer of information it's not just a linear sequence with information, there's information in the fact that it has a three-dimensional structure. Mm -hmm. And um, the more that we understand that, the more, the harder it is to imagine how this could have evolved, right? Because, because it's not just this simple linear sequence. That would be hard enough. But then you've got all these other layers on top of it. We talk about things like epigenetics, you know, which are chemical markers that affect the expression of DNA um, mm. and the, how much they differ from organism to organism. So you have all these layers there and you have all this information. I mean, way more than you'll ever get on any computer um, to think that you can build a living thing from that. Uh, and so that, that definitely points to the necessity of a creator. Definitely. Uh, one thing I, I forgot the illustration, but I, I love looking at just the majesty and the awe of God, because like when you're looking at astronomy, you can look at, if I'm uh, not mistaken, the average distance between two stars in the night sky is about five and a half trillion miles. And the closer you get to it, obviously, the farther away they get apart once you get closer mm -hmm. to an object and just the vastness of space. I've read something somewhere that if you were to line up a DNA strand, just one after the other, just in the line, how long would that line, that strand actually be? Oh, I have no idea. If you, if you took it out, I mean, some people try to say if you took out the DNA from every nucleus of, of every cell in your body, I've heard things like it would go to the moon and back, like I don't know how many times, I don't know offhand, or to the sun and back, you know, um, because it's a lot. I mean, it's very highly compacted. That's how it can fit. But um, it's amazing how much is in there. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole purpose of DNA is to speak to deliver messages and, and is it the enzymes that travel up and down that go ahead and re repair strands? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the roles. So DNA has its own repair enzymes so um, it can fix itself if mm -hmm. it makes a mistake. Um, otherwise we'd be just riddled with mutations. Yeah. Uh, it's fairly accurate. The enzymes are fairly good at replicating, like otherwise we'd all be dead. Um, but it's fairly good at replicating, but it has proofreaders, so to speak, that will go along and proof it and make sure it's right. Now it doesn't wow. do it hundred percent because we live in a fallen world and mutations do seep through and get through sometimes. But, um, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of enzymes that are involved in transcribing it from DNA to RNA and then RNA to proteins. and then You've got a lot of modifications in between. And so, yeah, it's a very complex system. That is fascinating. Point to the existence of God. I mean, it necessitates mm -hmm. God. Next one, still staying a little bit along the genetics line of reasoning. And you, you've probably heard of uh, the question, I don't think really is about this, but the homosexual gene, if you will. Yep. But really what's going on today in today's culture in the military, uh, 
how we had a thing that we couldn't allow people to join the military if they were diagnosed with gender dysphoria, mm. which is, correct me if I'm wrong, but gender dysphoria is where a person of one gender believes that they should be another gender and they try to live out that lifestyle and everything. So could you explain, is there something genetically that points to either somebody having this gender dysphoria? Is this part of a genetic irregularity? Is this more or less a upbringing of an individual, the lack of a fatherhood uh, type? What brings on gender dysphoria? Um, so I'm going to speak about this. I'm not a medical doctor. So, um, uh, and just from my research of looking into, um, could it have a genetic link? Okay. So that's, that's where I'm coming from because okay. that is probably one of the, the most asked questions I get nowadays, um, is transgender or homosexuality. A gen is there a genetic or a biological reason for it? And in all the research that I've looked at it and I just was updating a presentation I have on this um, yesterday, literally, um, and was looking up to see if, you know, new research had been released and some had, and I looked at it and yeah, over and over and over again, what I tell people is there is no genetic or biological link to this definitively. Um, the studies usually involve very few people. Um, and so like the most recent study on transgender looking at for a link, it was 30 people. I mean, that's not very many people, what's, not when you're uh, talking about looking at DNA. What's um, a, a group size if 30 is Yeah, you'd want thousands of people, ideally. Oh, okay. wow. I mean, you, yeah. yeah, for this type of a study, mm -hmm. um, you'd want that. Now, they did say this was a preliminary study, and they're trying to get more people, so I'll give that to them. But, um, but still, a lot of times they're looking at just one ethnicity, um, yeah. So that's an issue too, because the variations they're seeing could be ethnically related and not um, indicative of any kind of sexuality um, issue um, okay. underlying it. Um, gosh, there's so much I could say on this, but um, but just in summary, you know, looking at all the genetic things that they have published on it, even if you look at the actual paper and not the news report on it, okay. If you look at the actual paper, you will see that almost, I would say 95% of the time, the authors are like, well, we don't really know. Well, you know, we have not, this is not conclusive. Well, you know, and you see that, but the news media, of course, takes it and boom, you know, oh, there's a gay gene or, oh, there's these variations are linked to homosexuality or to being transgender. And no, the, even the authors themselves would never say that. Um, and even the authors themselves would say that it's more, even if it is this, let's say it does turn out to be some sort of genetic link, even they would say that's not the only reason. There's environmental reasons, there's societal reasons, there's, right. you know, there's other reasons that can't be the only thing. And so, um, so I think we have to be really careful with that. And one of the things I always say is, just because we haven't found it yet doesn't mean we won't find it at some point, but that doesn't change anything, okay? Even if we find that there is a genetic basis for homosexuality or transgender, it's not because God created people originally that way. It's a mutation. It's a, it's a problem in the DNA that has happened because we live in a sin-cursed world. And the reason I say that is because it's clear from God's word the homosexuality is a sin, right? It's clear that God made us male and female, not one or the other or one to become the other. Right. And so um, we have God's clear word on this. And so we can use that to help us understand what we're seeing. Now, does that mean that some people are going to struggle with this? Absolutely. I, I think people do. I think some people, for whatever reason, they struggle with it. Just like some people struggle with lying. Some people struggle with stealing. 
some people struggle with alcoholism, drug use. I mean, there are, we're all sinners <laughs> and we're living in a cursed world. And so we struggle with different things. Yeah. Um, but um, so that's not, that shouldn't be surprising to us, so to speak. Whether there's a genetic link for any of those things, we don't know. I, I have a hard time ascribing behavior to genetics because we just don't have any sure link um, showing that really. But even if we could, even if there was some underlying genetic reason, I think we have to be really careful to say, okay, yeah, that person may struggle with that, but that doesn't mean that there isn't hope uh, and help uh, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I love the word you used in there, ethnicity, ethnicity. You know, I think there's only one human race and the human race comes from Adam. But nowadays, everybody wants to talk about different race. It, it, to me, it's not different races. It's different ethnic groups and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, I like that. I like, thank you. So another cultural thing is how would you respond to an argument? And I understand you sound very much like a presuppositional apologist. And I love that. I am. But... <laughs> How would you respond to a skeptic, someone that may be seeking and honestly asking, are there truly more than two genders? Mm -hmm. From a genetic standpoint, someone for me, just a regular regular Joe, how would you be able to explain, yes, there's only two genders. There's not all these other things like it's being right. taught today. Well, being a presuppositional apologist, I would always start with God's word. <laughs> um, yeah. So we always start there and we see that God created the male and female. Um, and so there's also scriptures that reference um, males looking like males and females looking like females um, that, you know, this is who we, this is who God created us and designed us to be. Um, and we need to remain that way. Um, you know, there's no scriptural or biblical basis for, um, uh, you know, transitioning to the other one or, I mean, I right. think it really, you know, the more I think about the whole transgender thing, especially, I think it's just a slap in God's face. Because God designed you to be a male or a female. And you say, no, I know better than God. Yep. Right? I know what I feel like. I know my feelings are, are more important than what God's design is. So I'm going to be something else. I, I just think, and again, it just, it breaks my heart because I just think it, it's so sad um, that they think that transitioning to the other gender is somehow going to make that go away or make them feel better. And again, many, many studies show does exactly the opposite um, many people are, you know, um, regret, um, doing those kinds of things. But from a genetic standpoint, I would say, um, you know, there's, okay. Putting chromosomal abnormalities aside, because those things do happen. You are either XX or you are XY. There, there isn't anything else. Now, again, like I said, putting the chromosomal abnormalities aside, um, that's how you determine whether someone is a male or a female. Now, there are chromosome abnormalities because we live in a fallen world, but we should never argue from the abnormal for the normal, right? We shouldn't say, well, because there are some chromosomal abnormalities, um, then that somehow justifies the whole transgender thing. Um, I've looked at, it's interesting, they've looked at people that do exhibit um, sex chromosome abnormalities, okay, where maybe they have an extra X, um, they have an XXY, that's Kleinfelder syndrome, they have XO, they don't, they only have one X chromosome, that's Turner syndrome. Mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of those types of chromosome abnomalities. And I, I don't know the number offhand, but I know it's less than 1% of mm -hmm. those people struggle with any kind of gender dysphoria or um, transsexualism. Right. So even those people that have 
might have a legitimate genetic basis for that, even they don't really struggle with it. It's very, very low, the individuals that struggle with that. So I just don't think there's, I mean, um, I think from a, like I say, you know, people accuse us creationists of being anti-science. This whole transgender thing, this whole idea that sex and gender are different is the most anti-science, anti-biology thing I have ever seen. Really? Because it's it's ludicrous. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous to say that there's 112 genders or whatever it is nowadays. I'm just like, what? No, like this is not, that's not science. I mean, I, I know Governor Newsom in California is now going to allow people in prisons based on like if I'm a female and I think I'm a male, I can go to the male prison or vice versa, which is horrifying to think that you're going to have men in women's prisons. I mean, as much as these people have done things that are wrong, um, they still have a right to safety um, where they're being imprisoned. And it blows me away to think that we're allowing that people's feelings about what they are to dictate um, where they would even serve prison time. I mean, or what bathroom they're allowed to go into. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That's totally anti-scientific and anti-biological. Preach it. <laughs> yep. I love it. So, no, definitely. I'm going to read you a quote from the American Museum of Natural History. And uh, three species, the chimp, the bonobos, however you say it, bonobos and the humans, look alike in many ways, both in body and behavior. But for a clear understanding of how closely they are related, scientists compare their DNA. An essential molecule, that's the instruction manual for building each species. Human and chimps share a surprising 98.8% of their DNA. Human and chimp DNA is so similar because the two species are so closely related. Humans, chimps, and bonobos descended from a single ancestor species that lived six or seven million years ago. As human and chimps gradually evolved from a common ancestor, their DNA passed from generation to generation changed too. End quote. Could you explain the DNA similarities that's being talked of between mankind and chimp that they reference, whether or not there's validity to it, and does it point to a common ancestor? Okay, so I'll give you the really short version of this. <laughs> However you <laughs> want to do it. <laughs> it could take me an hour otherwise. Um, so, okay, the idea that they're 98% similar is completely false. Um, they're okay. not. Because one of the main, I mean, there's so many reasons why that's false. Um, the main reason being that they're not counting all the differences. So there's only certain types of differences that are going into that 98% similarity um, or the 2% difference. So they're mainly just counting substitutions in aligned regions. That's the only type of difference they're counting. They're not counting gaps. They're not counting copy number variations. They're not counting size differences. Um, there's a lot of, they're not counting um, DNA and what's called unaligned regions. They're not counting any of that because it's hard to count. Now, I always say science is about doing hard things. So just because it's hard, and I would agree, it's hard to count all those differences. That doesn't mean you just leave it out right. and you give people this false idea that they're only 2% different because they're not. And um, Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins at the Institute for Creation Research has done a lot of research on this, mm -hmm. um, comparing chimp and human genomes. And his most recent estimate says they're only about 80% similar. 
Oh, wow. That's a 20% difference, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And um, no way to account for that in an evolutionary time frame of 6 million years. Um, you just can't. No, no evolutionary geneticist in their right mind would think you could have that many differences in that amount of time. So, um, but that's just like one of the reasons um, why they're not. And, you know, two, that's just looking at the linear um, sequence of the DNA. Like I said, DNA is a three-dimensional structure. Yeah. So when you start to look at those kinds of things too, like chemical markers and epigenetics, um, humans and chimps are even more diff are, are different as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, there, there's lots of, that is just a story that they want you to believe, um, but it's actually not based in fact. Now, I, I've heard that humans share more percentage DNA with a banana. No, that's not true. Okay. So, no, we, I've heard 50% and that yeah. probably is pretty, I don't know how accurate that is because I haven't compared banana and human <laughs> genomes, but, um, but the reason that is, and people say that sounds kind of crazy, but you know, bananas are a plant and they have cells just like we do and they have to do, their cells have to do similar things that our cells have to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean, we don't photosynthesize obviously, but um, they have to do similar things. So it's not surprising that they would have some of the same DNA. I mean, we come from a common designer God who created the same thing in different species. And I mean, if, if it's not both, don't fix it, you know, right? I mean, right. why not use the same thing? I mean, in, in different organisms and that allows us to study it and understand it a lot better um, as well. So uh, yeah, so that's still like the short version. I have a whole DVD that talks about that particular um, topic. It's called the genetics of Adam and Eve. And mm -hmm. the newer version might say are humans and chimp related or, or humans related to chimps or something like that. But you can, you can find that DVD on the answers and Genesis website. That's how, you know, you've done so many books and videos because I can't remember the title. I know. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. So we're nearing the end, but I didn't want to talk about the fused chromosome and everything because that's a big topic, and, but I, I left that one out. But I did want to talk about human supposed evolution, and I want to talk about Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you have an article in 2012 where you speak about Neanderthals or cavemen and modern humans. Can you explain what the evolutionist teaches about Neanderthals and where would Neanderthals fit within the biblical narrative? So Neanderthals would be seen as some sort of ancient man, you know, in the line leading, um, not necessarily in the line leading to humans. They would say they're sort of like, they were a population that was more obviously highly evolved than an ape. Mm -hmm. um, and there's definitely evidence they would say that they interbred with modern humans, what we consider modern humans today, just like Denosovans and some other smaller groups of people um, that they would say existed at the same time as modern humans, but they were um, a distinct and separate group. Um, but I think, you know, it's interesting because from a creation perspective, from a biblical narrative, we would say these were people that lived probably shortly after the flood uh, or the Tower of Babel event. Maybe they were an isolated population of some kind, which is why certain characteristics became dominant, like the brow ridge and things like that. Um, and so, uh, but for whatever reason, they died out, you know, those individuals with those characteristics. Um, but you still see those characteristics in people today. There are some people with very pronounced brow ridges. Um, and I actually just saw an article saying the reason that some people are very susceptible to COVID is because of a Neanderthal variation that we have in our DNA today, which is kind of interesting. Um, so we can blame Neanderthals. For well, I don't have COVID. I didn't get it yet. So apparently I'm not yeah. Neanderthal. Yeah. So I didn't either, but so anyway, they, um, so they would say, so we would say from biblical perspective, these were fully human. 
They're not a separate species. They're, they're just, you know, again, they had many of the characteristics that humans do today. Just some were a little bit different than others. And they, we know that they um, made jewelry, they created musical instruments, they buried their dead. Um, all of these things um, indicate human beings, fully human beings. And I think it's getting harder and harder for evolutionists to argue that they were somehow subhuman, you know, right? right? Because they can't deny, I mean, it's pretty hard to deny the archeological evidence associated with Neanderthals and to say that they were anything other than human <laughs> or fully yeah. human. So I think we'll see that in our lifetimes, probably um, them come to that conclusion, but we already knew that from a biblical perspective. And it's kind of interesting whenever one starts looking at Peking man, Java man, Cro-Magnon man, all these other ones that turned out to either be hoaxes or misidentified mm -hmm. from pig's tooth or whatever the case is. Yeah. And so yeah. it's just a matter of time. Uh, so really the title of the video series, How Genetics Reveals the Necessity of God. Uh, one of the quotes I've heard, I've heard Dr. Frank Turk say, I don't know if he, he coined it or whatever, but uh, one of the questions you really got to ask yourself is, did mind create matter or did matter create mind? Now, the evolutionist naturalist would posit that matter created mind with the Big Bang Theory and the information coded within uh, DNA, whereas a Christian, a creationist, would argue that mind, God, created matter in everything we see. Uh, outside of that aspect of it, the abstract and numbers, math, and just thoughts, what do you believe it gives the greatest necessity of God that we see throughout creation, throughout genetics? What reveals God's necessary existence? Okay, I'm trying to understand your question. <laughs> so, how does genetics reveal the necessity of God? Okay, okay. There we go. got it. Okay, <laughs> sorry, so, um, I get long winded sometimes. <laughs> So it reveals it, I think, again, because when you look at the complexity of it, um, and even, you know, you could even look at it, I mean, it is the fact that we have repair enzymes and the ability to repair our DNA, that's the grace of God, right? Um, the fact that he created our genome so robust that it can take a lot of hits and keep on ticking, so to speak. I mean, we've had 6,000 years since the fall, um, and most studies would say we should have went extinct by now, but we haven't. Um, because I think God made our genome so robust that it can take a lot of those kinds of hits um, and, and changes in it and still be okay, um, still produce normal, you know, fairly, at least normal, we're all mutants, but fairly normal human beings. Uh, so I think that's pretty amazing um, when you think about that. So, uh, so I definitely see just by its complexity and some of those kinds of things that that necessitates God and really shows the, the creator God of the Bible. Amen. What recommendations would you have for a Christian engaging a skeptic, a naysayer, maybe someone that's curious? Uh, what kind of recommendations, insight would you give them in having a conversation with them about God, God's existence, things like that? I think um, one of the main things is to ask questions. Um, I think we tend, it's, it's hard because we want to prove <laughs> our points um, and we can get upset. So I would say stay calm. Um, don't panic, don't get frustrated. Remember that most likely, especially if you're talking to an atheist, this person is not a child of God. Um, they do not have the Holy Spirit in them. And so these things seem very foreign to them and very um, wrong to them because of that. And so we have to remember that as a lost person that needs saved. Um, and so I think that the gospel has to be at the forefront of our minds. I mean, hopefully people can use, I mean, we have to start with who God is and, you know, the God of the Bible and start with creation. I think that's the best way to evangelize in our world today. 
um, because we have a lot of people who don't know what the Bible says. But I think the best way is to start asking them questions, you know, um, hear what they have to say and then say, well, why, why do you think this way? You know, what's your basis for thinking the way that you think? Mm -hmm. Get it to the presuppositions, because I think that what is their foundation? What's their starting point? Because I mean, like if I was talking to a geologist, I'm not going to argue rocks because I'm not a geologist and I'm going to lose that debate probably pretty quickly. I know some basic things, but I don't know it like they know it. So I don't want to argue there. I don't want to, I don't want to start there. I want to start with why do they think the way that they think? Mm. Um, and I remember um, Rosaria Butterfield, I don't know if you're familiar with her, mm. but she came out of the lesbian lifestyle um, and is a pastor's wife actually now. And um, one of the things that got her first thinking, um, she said, was a pastor asked her, why do you think you're right? <laughs> why do you think homosexuality is right and not wrong? You know, and she's like, I had to think about that. You know, why do I think it's right? What foundationally, why do I believe this is true? And so I think it can really, people just, a lot of people have never thought about it before. They honestly haven't. They just believe it because their textbook said it or they, you know, the guy on the TV said it or whatever. They've never had to really, they've never had to defend what they believe right. um, and why they believe it. So I think it's important to start there because I think it gives you a lot of insight into where the person is at mm -hmm. and what might be the best tools then to help them along in that journey to the gospel. That's awesome. Yeah, Greg Kokel uh, talks a little bit about putting stones in people's shoes and uh you know pre-evangelism conversational apologetics like the geisler's uh book talks about just like you said asking them questions a lot of times as a christian we want to go on the offense or even right. on defense sometimes as opposed to just asking them questions mm -hmm. looking at them as a human being with thoughts with a background i do a lot of engaging with mormons mm -hmm. and uh, one of the first things i always ask a mormon when i'm talking to them is how did you get involved in mormonism the ods right. church because I'm going to talk to a person that's like a fifth generation Mormon different than somebody that just got into the religion a week ago. Right. So you, like you said, you got to have, have different starting grounds, starting points. So wonderful. Do you have any final uh, closing comments or anything you'd like to share that you haven't had a time to address yet? Um, no, just encourage people to check out the answers in Genesis.org website. Um, we have a um, a set of creation apologetics classes um, that we offer online. Um, so if you really want to be grounded in creation apologetics, um, we have, I think it's six courses that we have right now. We're going to be releasing a world religions course or a set of courses as well soon online. Um, and so those are really great to get yourself equipped if you really want to dive a little deeper, so to speak. Um, those are a great tool to be able to do that. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Purnam, I thank you for, again, spending your time with us here. And uh, I know you're a very busy lady. So uh, best yeah. wishes to you. Uh, God's blessed for you and your ministry and your family there. And for everybody that's still watching, let us know in the comments below any questions you might have for Dr. Purnam. Let us know what you think and uh, give us ideas for future interviews as well. So until next time, thanks for watching and God bless.